Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, we're now barely a week away from a general election in this country, which will crop up, I think, in this podcast. Are you excited, thrilled, enjoying the great democratic festival? I'm not sure those are the words. Exhausted is probably You're the word. already if exhausted. We could, if we could now cut to that clip of Brenda from Bristol. Yeah, just oh, play that. I know. <laughs> don't know, don't know, this was a woman who was in, interviewed by the BBC the day after, or the day of the election being announced, and she said how sick of it she already was. This is a short election campaign, but it mm. does feel... I mean, it's just you say exhausting, because compared to, A, the American election campaign, which takes two years, yeah. and the normal election campaign, which in this country is kind of too much... Normal. Oh, I know, but it comes a like year after referendum. Yeah, and just and ugh, ugh, I don't know. No. I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> I think just exhausted is another word I want to come back to, just because I can't believe that Theresa May was exhausted after her two and a half mile walk that led her to call a snap general election. Yeah, she, she was. She, she did a U. She, she did a U. Didn't the she? Shortest she, walk. She went ever. wandering around the British countryside, and as a result, she decided to call a general election. Yeah, two and a half miles, and oh. that's what happened. Imagine if she went on a proper long walk. What did you do? Well, I, I, I did didn't really that. make any decisions yeah. when well, I walked for All you did was have miles. thoughts about cheese. <laughs> and that is the difference between you and Theresa That's May. That's why I will not yeah. enter politics. There may be other differences also. Uh, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, do Google TLS subscriptions and type POD1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the podcast this week, on June the 5th, 1967, the Six-Day War began between Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq and Syria. It was a tremendous and perhaps surprising military success for Israel and led to that country seizing the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, thus establishing the boundaries of the territorial dispute that exists to this day. We have several pieces commemorating the 50th anniversary of this event, and our political editor, Toby Lishtig, will be speaking to the Israeli author, Asaf Gavron. Foxes have made a surprise appearance in this year's general election campaign, oddly enough, with Prime Minister Theresa May indicating that she wouldn't mind seeing one or two torn apart by the odd pack of hounds, urged on by horsey types in red coats. Yoikes, as I believe the expression is, certainly the one used by the wonderful Aunt Dahlia in the Jeeves and Worcester books. Tom Holland, historian and preserver of British fauna, has written a piece for us about foxes and their cultural identity and will be speaking to us later. Wither Wagner, that is a question we might reasonably also consider today. Is there a figure of high culture more beloved by some while being utterly disregarded by others? Our opera critic Guy Deman has shown impressive intellectual stamina by not only sitting through an entire ring cycle, but also reading a book on Wagner by Roger Scruton. He'll be explaining the magic for us. On June the 5th, 1967, the world shifted once more. The Six-Day War, which has led to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza Strip and more, fundamentally altered the power politics of the Middle East and has set the battleground of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that persists with great tragedy and sorrow to this day, 50 years on. 
This week's TLS commemorates that anniversary with a number of pieces. We have Yuri Dromi, Yitzhak Rabin's former press secretary, reviewing a new biography of Rabin, a man who Bill Clinton believes would have brought peace to the region had he not fallen to an assassin's bullet. Ari Shavit has written a long piece telling not only of his own experience of the war, but the social, political and military consequences that followed. Lena Al-Safin, a Palestinian journalist, recalls life in Palestinian schools where children read histories of their nations sanctioned by the Israeli government. And finally, we are extracting Asaf Gavron's essay on the subject of the Palestinian football team, taken from Kingdom of Olives and Ash, a book of essays edited by Michael Chabon and Ayelet Waldman, published this week. Toby Lichtig spoke to Gavron earlier and asked why it was possible to tell the story of the Palestinian situation through its football team. There's something about football that is beyond life. It's beyond borders and beyond nations. The most popular game on earth. Because of that, I think it has this power to pass over those differences. And, and when you look into it, it, it gives, you, gives you a way to understand things. For me, when I was asked to contribute to this book of essays marking 50 years of the occupation, being Israeli who lived all his life uh, in this situation and knows everything about it and, and, and read about it every day. I think, for me, football was a way to look at it differently. You talk about it passing over, but it, but it is, of course, a very political thing. You know, sport can be political in any country, but particularly in Israel-Palestine, the way you've talked about, the way football's used, it, it is more than just a game, isn't it? Not only in Israel and Palestine, many does. A great book by Simon Cooper, uh, Football Against the Enemy that goes all over the world and talks about, you know, conflict from Honduras to Russia to, to all over. And in Palestine, it's been fascinating for me. That's one of the aspects of, of the piece, not all of it, but fascinating how the Palestinians uh, use football as a diplomatic tool, and especially uh, in FIFA, where they are considered a national entity, which is one of the only places where they are considered so. And, and through that, they can put a lot of pressure on Israel. So it's, it's tremendously uh, so symbolically important, isn't it, that, that they're recognized by this body as a, as a nation? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, had, according to his office, he had a 30-minute conversation with the president of FIFA. Now, the Prime Minister of Israel... He has pressure from everywhere, from everyone, but he took the time to speak to the president of FIFA because he, he understood this symbolic power. This FIFA recognizes Palestine as a nation and tells Israel, well, you are breaking our rules and you're in danger of, of losing, you know, your membership, losing the, the right to play in, you know, the World Cup qualifiers or so then uh, it shows how Israel fears this development. And how long has Palestine been, uh, been recognised by FIFA in this way? And also, how did it happen? I think it's since 1998. Two years earlier, in 1996, uh, the Palestinians uh, were recognised also by the Olympic uh, Committee. And uh, 1996 was the first time they sent a team to the Olympics. How it happened, I think, I think it was it, in the 90s, there was the, the Oslo uh, peace process, the peace agreement. There was a recognition by Israel, too, of the Palestinian Authority as the representative of uh, the Palestinian people. And they were given, uh, through this uh, peace process, some power uh, over uh, some of the cities in the West Bank, which they still have. And part of that process was uh, recognition in other areas. Um, have you ever seen the Palestinian national team play then? Not in real life. I've seen uh, <laughs> a lot of videos and there's a great documentary about them. Uh, Are they any uh, good? They have been doing really well. Actually, last year they jumped in their FIFA ranking from uh, 100, I don't remember exactly, but 140 something to 110 or so, which is a huge jump. It happened mainly thanks to uh, their success in the World Cup qualifiers. They play in the Asia qualifiers. Yes, well, while Israel plays in, in Europe, it's quite curious that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's it, it's very curious. Israel is considered European uh, in sports and in the Eurovision, uh, but of course, it's not really part of Europe. So that's another question. But yeah, uh, Palestine is, is it plays in Asia, and they, they finished third 
uh, in a group of five, with the, the teams being above them being quite good teams like Saudi Arabia. And that's in, in spite of certain obstacles that, that's put before them. I, I wonder if you could just briefly tell me the, the kind of difficulties Palestinian players face. That's right. That's another uh, kind of um, aspect of football. You know, the regular occupation story, I say regular, horrible and sad, but things like uh, not being able to move freely from place to place, like teams uh, not being able to cross, including the national team. Some players are, are detained when they try to cross uh, the border to, to play uh, international games. And also another, uh, what I call a regular aspect of, of the occupation is arrests of players, uh, just sometimes random arrests. It's just this mechanism of occupation that you know read about in, in, in all aspects of life. And, so, so I suppose in this in this light, being kind of uh, in the in the early hundreds in the rankings is a particular success story for for Palestine and a nation that doesn't all too often enjoy success stories of this nature. It's a, it's a happy story. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. Also, the way this team is being uh, kind of developed and, and managed. There are Palestinians who are expats who come in from the U.S. or uh, from uh, Chile. There's a big contingency in Chile, apparently, and they, they, a lot of them play football there. And then some who play in the Israeli league, and then uh, some who play in the Palestinian league, which is uh, also another amazing story, the very um, exciting uh, league, despite all those difficulties and, and hardships of, of moving around. That was Asaf Gavron in conversation with Toby Lishtig. Kingdom of Olives and Ash is published by Fourth Estate. Toby is still here with us. Uh, Toby, let's talk about some of the other pieces that appear. We've got a few commemorating this 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War and therefore the Israeli occupation. What struck you in any of the other pieces? What else would you draw attention to? Well, I think I think what struck me is, is a general tone of, of resignation and, and mild desperation at the catalogue of terrible political decisions and missed opportunities over 50 years and, and even sort of beyond that. Um, but there's also hope. Do you think there is? Because one thing I found was that there seems to be a suggestion that the solution that may have been close in the 90s or felt like it was becoming close in the 90s feels further away than ever. It feels further away than ever, but um, we did get there in the 90s and we almost got there again about 15 years ago in 2001 and these things can move very quickly. So although I can't foresee anything happening, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's always impossible to tell with these things. And I, I don't know, I mean, the, 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 the hope that I took from it, okay, there were various things. There's Lena al Safin's piece. She's a wonderful young Palestinian journalist who wrote about the kind of, you know, the cohesiveness of the Palestinian nation. So despite the fissures, despite, you know, you've got Hamas on one side uh, in Gaza and you've got a different political entity in the West Bank, but she talks about the way Palestine can unite around its cultural icons. And that seemed very hopeful in terms of... Even when Palestinian children are learning Israeli history. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, there, there is one curriculum now, which is which is a, an advancement on, on what they used to be. And despite a, a degree of censorship and Israeli interference, there is a sense of Palestinian solidarity, which I think... I think will, will help them tremendously. And then you've got Yuri Dromi, who wrote a, a wonderful piece on Yitzhak Rabin. And the, it's, it's not the most optimistic piece in the world. And you're right to say that, you know, the, the, the uh, Oslo Accords are as close as we've ever got. Um, and we're certainly far away from that now. But there was a line that struck me that he, he wrote. He said, um, the quest for peace is really the quest for security. And actually, that kind of, that pragmatic attitude is incredibly important. And I think, understanding that is the key to understanding the solution and I think there are enough sensible people in Israel um, to, to sort of pursue that line it's just a question of whether they but not running Israel you might but, say. well but not running Israel at the moment and that is a problem I think that the piece by Ari Shavit that really I think to me made clear how everything can seem its opposite absolutely so he has that line in it where he says paradoxically the six day war also opened the road to peace and then goes through the the why everything that w- that seems bad can also have the opposite effect. 
Absolutely. So he calls it a curse within a blessing for Israel and a, and a blessing within a curse for Palestine. And the reason for that is, you know, it looked like this tremendous victory in 1967 and it set the path for the, the peace accords with Egypt and Jordan. But actually, it also sowed the seeds of many of the current problems by encouraging this kind of messianic fervour. And then... It was too dominant, effect. It was too surprising it, and too dominant a victory. It was too victory. surprising and too dominant a victory. And then there was a failure to let go. And there was a fa- even um, even Moshe Dayan, you know, this, the kind of the hardline Israeli general who, who was desperate for this war even he thought the territory should be let go sooner or yeah. than later and the, and the real thing it did was fan the flames of this religious fervor so you know the sense that the lands of judea and samaria uh, you know it, it says in the bible this mm. is the, these should be run created, by the jewish people it created the climate for for a party like the the Likud party exactly which is absolutely so so there were the seeds of the Likud party which is currently in power and netanyahu is, is the prime minister and he, he he's the head of the Likud party i mean the seeds of that actually go back to the 30s and a certain, and I, I stress certain, fascist strain in Zionism. You know, a lot of Zionism, early Zionism, was, was very left-wing. It's funny, we think of Israel now as a right-wing country, yeah. but it was, you know, it had its seeds in, in, in socialism and communism and there, there were various relations with the, the, the sort of early Soviet state, but there was also a, a very right-wing fascist strain in, in elements of Zionism and that, that's that's where the Likuds come out of and that's what 67 kind of helped to usher And that's in. what it feels like there is today because you and I have spoken about this before where this notion of can you imagine an Israeli politician in the next five years effectively campaigning on a ticket that says we are going to consider the two-state solution, we're going to give up this land, we're going to give up this land. And at the minute, with under Netanyahu, that doesn't feel very likely, does it? No, it doesn't feel very likely. And, you know, the, the, one of the main problems is the Israeli right, uh, sorry, the, the Israeli religious right. And, you know, they're, they're a very powerful block and he's got to pander to them. But it's very, you know, it's very hard to say what would happen. Asaf says in his piece, you know, it's taken 50 years and I'm not convinced it won't take another 50 years, but it will end because it has to end. It's completely untenable as much as anything else. And this year is, in fact, it's an anniversary year for the two-state solution as well because it's 80 years since, was it the Peel report first suggested a two-state solution back in 1937 and then the UN took that onto its kind of uh, books in 1947. So, I mean... I mean, where 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 are we now? Because every time you 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 look it up, it's, it's in a way it's looking less like. In a way, we're we're, we're closer to we're closer to a two state solution than we were in 1947. There's a fantastic line from from Shavit, and it really crystallised everything for, for me. He said, um, "Before the war, the conflict this is before the Six Day War, the conflict between Israel and the Arab world was existential and therefore insoluble." Uh, a few years after, it became territorial and then soluble. And where we are now is it, it is territorial. And the arguments over the years have been over little that's, bits of territory. That's, that's the good within the bad. That's the good within the bad, yeah. absolutely. But that's why I find it interesting, because if you if you don't have a two-state solution, and Trump is kind of not helpful in this either, he, he sort of started talking about two-state solution being effectively dead. A one-state solution, which is a territorial solution, is pretty much apartheid. Ultimately, it's one side winning and the other side being you crushed. You can argue that that's already the case, though, in vast swathes. Well, it is. It is to a certain extent, but there, there is no democratic one-state solution, and that would always be a disaster for Israel if, if it is to ma- remain a Jewish state, which is yep. in its very fabric, because you know, as soon as, as, soon as um, Arabs are outnumbering Jews, then it can no longer be a, a Jewish state. So that there is no possibility of there ever being a democratic one-state, single state. It's just, And it's hard to imagine even philosophically either side really wanting one because I, at no, some point absolutely at not. some point one side's going to be dominant over the other and the other side is not going to want that absolutely so i've i've i mean i i've, I've met palestinians you know certain palestinians on the left who kind of talk about it a, a one state and i've met certain left-wing Jews who also think there should be one state, but I, I've just never understood how that could possibly work. I think two states, preferably democratic ones, coexisting peacefully and not killing each other is the only really real way to go. And we don't know when that will happen. Uh, Toby, thank you so much for joining. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting group of, of thoughts on this. It's a bit Maybe a bit depressing, but you think there's a glimmer of hope. I, I didn't find it depressing either. Okay. I, I, I also found, I mean, you know, the, the, some of the pieces are coming from the left in Israel or whatever, but I, I do think there's a tremendous power on the Israeli left and a, and a real desire to see things change. And although Netanyahu is still in the ascendancy, things, you know, things change. And I think the, the, what that Ari Shavit did, sorry, just the final note, so well was to, I mean, for the first three columns on the page of, of his piece... He's he's giving his perspective and, and, and what it felt like as a child um, to gather around the radio and, and hear reports of war and invasion. Um, and then he flips it to a completely different account, a much more balanced account, but also one that is much less flattering of, of his side. 
so to speak. Absolutely. And, the, you and know, it just goes to show the, 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 the perspectives and the ability to see things from the other side, which is... Seeing it not as, not as a binary is the only way that any solution can really be yeah. resolved. Toby Lichstig, thank you very much indeed. No wild animal plays a more significant or ambivalent role in the imaginings of the British than the fox. So says Tom Holland, historian, animal fancier and cricket bore on social media. Do follow him on Twitter if you're interested in tales of his sporting tribulations with bat and ball. Why is that, is a question, as it relates to foxes, we shall be considering with him. Because the impact of this vividly ready orange creature has been felt throughout history and across different cultures. Aesop's fox, as Tom reminds us, was a cunning blighter a couple of thousand years ago. And the Irish word shenanigans, this is brilliant, I think, may well come from the Gaelic phrase meaning I play the fox. Foxes are, of course, political once more in Great Britain. The Conservative manifesto proposes a free vote in the House of Commons on the return to fox hunting, made illegal under Tony Blair. And a crushing Tory majority would, in all likelihood, mean the ban being repealed. Fox hunting is one of those emotional issues always blown up beyond its realistic importance, acting as a proxy for rows between old and young, rural and urban, posh and not so posh. In any event, it's hard to think of an animal more capable of arousing artistic and political feeling than the fox. Tom Holland joins us now to discuss some more. Tom, thank you for being on the show. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get to politics, let's discuss the animal's impact on our imagination. Um, you mentioned uh, Aesop, but Chaucer tells a sort of rattling fox story in The Nun's Priest Tale. Ben Jonson gave us Volpone, that cunning so-and-so, and Bell and Sebastian sang about uh, Fox in the Snow, one of their songs. Why do you think they've loomed so large in all our collective imaginations? Because I think they are uniquely suited to playing a, an ambivalent role. Um, some of the uh, examples that you gave, so the nun's priest tale, the fox is the villain. Um, it tries to grab Chanticleer, um, and clearly we're siding w- with the cockerel. But if you think of, of Aesop's fables, which you cited, but also um, Roald Dahl's um, fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah. we're encouraged to side with the fox as an example of supreme cunning but he's kind of the odysseus of the natural world so i think that it is an animal of immense character it looks striking it behaves in striking ways and for all those reasons we are encouraged to either to identify with it or to dread it are they lovable do you think i don't think they are lovable and i think that 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 again is is one of the reasons for the for, for the hold it has on our imagination because what the fox gives us, and perhaps particularly for those of us who live in cities where we can really feel divorced from the natural world, what it gives us is, is a glimpse of the authentically wild. They are not cute. Maybe uh, fox cubs are, but, but in general, if you see an adult fox rifling through the bins or stalking along uh, the wall of a garden, there's a faint hint of the primordial carnivores that we've lost, I think. The lynx, the wolf, the bear. A reminder of the world in which nature is actually red in tooth and claw. Yeah, and I suppose the thing with foxes is, as as you said, not only their ambivalence as as characters, but their ambivalence in that we we can never quite grasp them and decide what they are. I mean, the foxes that you've mentioned in London, I mean, they're not authentically wild really in that they're actually sort of dependent on us and our litter so they're both they're both wild you know both urban and of the natural world people people surprisingly quite often are confused as to whether they're more like cats or more like dogs which is quite (laughs) an interesting thing to to wonder about because those are sort of taken as being opposites but i think one of the things about the fox is that unlike most other wildlife they're not actually dependent on conservation measures we have to go to great efforts to try and conserve an animal even as iconic as the hedgehog. With foxes, they subsist without any attempt by us to look after us. And it's absolutely right. If they're coming into the towns, then, of course, they tend to be preying on discarded Big Macs. But well, they're almost vermin, they're not, aren't they? are not doing it because we are, you know, we, we are donating food to them. Mm. They are scavenging off us. And out in the countryside... They live without our sufferance, and there are very few animals that you can say that of anymore. And I suppose, and people are, you know, whenever you, sport, you talk to people about foxes, if people have ever kept chickens, yeah, you mentioned foxes, and and they're appalled because it's said they're an animal that kills for the joy of it rather than for 
just for hunger. Well, you say that. I mean, that's a very emotive way, and it makes it sound like a, 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 a kind of serial killer that is exulting in, in um, spilling blood. I, I think that that is unfair. I mean, what it is doing is obeying its natural instincts as an animal. And when it kills all those chickens, it's doing it to store them up for later times. I mean, you come in, I know, I'm, my brother keeps chickens and actually has given up because the foxes have, have, have killed so many of his chickens. So it is a horrible thing to come in and see what seems to be an absolutely random killing. But, it, but it's not true. The fox is, is doing what foxes do. Well, let's, let's get on to the idea of hunting them because that, that is a political issue now. Why is it so divisive, do you think? Because in, in some ways, a debate about rural matters like this wouldn't excite that many people. In a way that, say, the badger cull for tuberculosis doesn't necessarily excite this level of political excitement. What, what is it about hunting that's so divisive, do you think? Well, again, I've been saying that, that what the fox gives people in Britain, I think, uniquely is an authentic taste of nature as it used to be back in the primordial days uh, when, when humans first settled this island. And hunting is a key aspect of what nature is about. Humans were once a part of that ecosystem. The thrill of the hunt comes very naturally to those who are naturally predators, and humans certainly are predators, foxes are predators. The thrill of, of hunting an animal is deep wired into our very nature. So when people are, are galloping across the countryside in pink coats... I thought they were red. Are they not red? Have I yeah, but they're, called, they're, they're red coats, but they're called pinks, supposedly oh, God, because it derives from uh, Thomas Pink. The, um, oh, really? Supposedly. I'm sure you'll get readers uh, writing in and complaining about that. But I think that when, when, so w- when fox hunters are galloping across the countryside, they are satisfying that primordial urge. Equally, we have tended to sentimentalise nature now and sentimentalise animals. And so there is a, that, that tension that we, precisely because we no longer depend on the hunt for our food, it has come to seem as though continuing that tradition is unnecessary and bloodthirsty and cruel. Well, I think, and also the British in particular pride themselves on, on being these animal lovers. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's an interesting, um, in Lucy Jones's book, she brings these two sides together, the thrill of the hunt and then the love of animals. She brings these together in, in the paradoxical figure of her grandfather. I find yes. the description of her grandfather really difficult to understand. Well, he was a, he was a committed member of the RSPCA, but equally a committed hunter. That's what I find. I can't reconcile those two things. Well, I, I, I think the truth is that if you look at the way that throughout history, through, and particularly throughout mythology, there has always been a sense of identification between humans and those that they hunt, it seems to me the likeliest explanation for what is going on in prehistoric cave art, that in some way the cave artists are paying a kind of homage to the animals that they have hunted. And so I have never gone fox hunting and I have no wish to go fox hunting. But I can absolutely accept what Lucy Jones says in her book, that it is possible for those who do go fox hunting in some way to love the fox. And respect, there's something about this notion that, I mean, to me it sounds very odd, but the idea is, it's almost respecting its place in the hierarchy. And although that does involve it being hunted to death, it's still seen as part of the ecosystem yeah. that, that they, they voluntarily inhabit. Well, I'm interested, though, Tom, why would the Tories want to resurrect this debate at all? It seems to me that if you support hunting, you already vote Tory. It's not going to win you any votes. And it's I just have gonna... no idea what the Tories are doing with their campaign this election. No, it's, it's, it's all an over absolute the place, mystery. You know, if there's a fish in a barrel, their ability to, to, to miss shooting it seems eerie. Let's hunt the fish. But it doesn't make any sense, does it? Because I, I think the only people who would care enough about it to influence their vote are probably young urban people who would say, yeah. I'm not voting for a bunch of toffs on horses. And that view of the Tories sort of telegraph reading Colonel Blimps in the Shires, this policy becomes completely symbolic of that doesn't it whether right or wrong i don't know i mean maybe maybe it's a it's a kind of a desire to appeal to um you know an old-fashioned pre-eu britain that we may be returning to with brexit who knows i have no idea what they were thinking of with yeah the great nostalgia well uh, there's there's an argument tom that nostalgia is now the driving force in all of our politics well, fox hunting is key in that. I th- and I think not only for fox hunting men and women, 
but also I think for saboteurs for whom and again Lucy James book makes this very clear there is an, there was an element of sport in um, trying to stop the hunts um, for both you know huntsmen and saboteurs the thrill of going out on a hunt day and in a sense having a quarry yeah. was was a key part of it and um and possibly playing out a class dispute in in some ways, in the same way the poacher yes, the poachers against the gamekeeper. There are venerable tensions there. So class is an obvious one, but also, of course, the tension between town and country. Just finally, before you go, Tom, you also review a book, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you the science of this uh, in any great detail, but How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog, which is about an experiment that's been going on in Russia since 1959, which yeah. is to domesticate the fox. Your, your reviews uh, are accompanied by this big picture of these fox dog cubs, which are the cutest things you, you can imagine. Uh, what's the point of this? Because this sounds fascinating and, and, and kind of oddly convincing. You, it, is the idea that you can enact what happened to wolves becoming dogs yeah. with foxes? Well, essentially, it, it, it's an attempt to um, to understand the process by which domestication may have occurred, that the, the process by which wolves may have become sufficiently domesticated to live alongside humans, and and to track the science of it. And it's a, a remarkable experiment, and the speed with which foxes have been transmuted into the kind of thing that you might get in a Disney cartoon is astonishing. Is there any conclusion we can draw from that, or just simply that that's what we've done to wild animals like wolves and, and that's what is possible to, for humans well, I to thought, do? I, I thought the most remarkable thing that I learned from reading it was that tame foxes turn out to have much higher levels of, of, of serotonin than feral foxes. So it may be that, that being domesticated is the equivalent of um, you know, going to a nightclub and taking ecstasy. Well, on that bombshell, Tom, let's, <laughs> let's leave it there. Tom Hallen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You don't strike me as a natural huntswoman, <laughs> Thea Lenaduce. Is that a fair, is that a I fair think assumption? That's a fair, I think that's a fair Have assumption. you ever done it? <laughs> no. Have you ever sab- sabotaged a hunt? No, I haven't. No, I haven't no, done yeah. that either. I'm and, you know, I, I, prob- I probably should. I feel so strongly well, for I'm it. Well, I'm from Loughborough. And the village next door to Loughborough is corn. And the corn hunt is a thing, apparently. Yeah. But, I, I, but they're not hunting corn. no. They'd probably do that now. <laughs> they, just hunt, they just hunt a giant piece of corn. But it never. What's interesting is it never really impacted on my life mm-hmm. whatsoever because I'm not from the circles. That's why I do think it's very class ridden. There's oh, a certain absolutely. type of person goes fox hunting, and it's not ordinary people. Which is why I think it's a very strange Tory policy. Because who are you appealing to with it? Outright libertarians who I think will find other things, battlefields to die on than this, mm. and people who are going to vote Tory anyway. I can only imagine she and and Theresa May, uh, she who must not be named, and um, the rest of her party just thought, well, we may as well. It's something that they've spoken about for ages and ages, and it's a, it's a safe thing to make those people feel that you know the pink the pink coats feel very happy and really yeah. riled. And, and they haven't really changed their policy because the policy has always been to have a free vote on it yeah. at some point, yeah. and it just means it's more likely now because they could get a majority. Yeah, and it, you know it's perfect for the cover of the Daily Mail. See, is the Daily Mail going to be pro-fox hunting? To, are they going to care enough? I just, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't seem to appeal to enough people. Mm. I just don't, I think it's a really funny thing because if you speak to some people about it, they will say, I will never vote for a party that supports fox hunting. I'm not sure you tell only vote for the party that supports <laughs> foxing. You have a very funny set of priorities. You know, what what mm. do you care about most in terms of the national debate? Yeah, let's butcher some poor foxes. Well, just, yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There can be few cultural artefacts more forbidding to the amateur, the casual customer, than Wagner's ring cycle. More so than Alla Recherche or Finnegan's Wake or War and Peace, which you can put down and read in your own time. Wagner's opera connotes immediately a sense of physical trial, of fast and unforgiving expanse, of a peculiarly Germanic, buttock-numbing toughness. As Blackadder says of the Germans at one point, and he might have been thinking of Wagner, the Jutonic reputation for brutality is well-founded. Their operas last three or four days and they have no word for fluffy. There is, it would seem, nothing fluffy about Wagner. Our opera critic Guy Damon has been to see Stockholm's Royal Opera's version of Der Ring des Nibelungen, as well as reading two books on Wagner, The Ring of Truth by Roger Scruton and Being Wagner by Simon Callow. He joins Thea and me now. Guy, in this lovely big piece you've written for us this week, you refer to the need simply to listen to the music. I wonder if you might start by telling us briefly, if if such a thing is possible with such a work as this, the story Wagner's trying to tell and the manner of its relationship to the music. Well, the intro, um, very interesting, because you mentioned this idea that, uh, you know, Wagner's ring is uh, somehow even more unapproachable than, for example, Alain Recherche de Tempadou or Finnegan's Wake. You know, all these kind of modernist megaloths are somehow kind of more approachable than Wagner's Ring. And, and that, you know, there's some truth in that, in the sense that you need to spend, you know, four evenings in a theatre, and, and the shortest evening is a three-hour opera with no interval. So it's a, it's a big commitment of time, but I think anybody who does commit that time finds that the time rushes along pretty quickly. So a, a good instance of how the music just carries you is if you just listen to the opening bars of the first opera, you soon find that... Uh, you know, the, the, the musical imagery is so immediate. The musical world he opens us, it's just this opening gesture of just a bare fifth, barely audible in the double basses and then this growing mesh of sound, which sounds completely static, uh, and yet it's kind of it's teeming, teeming with life, rather like a, a river in a way, sort of de- depicting the beginning of time. As soon as you get carried away by this, this flow of, uh, of the music, Suddenly, you're just suddenly there, and everything is done for you. And the music is more important than than, than really this story, which is kind of a uh, fall of man story, a kind of origins of of, of mythology story. Do you find is it is it possible to say actually some of the goings on on stage, the stage business, don't matter in comparison to the experience of just listening? No, I think that's entirely false. In the sense that the music is the story, so. There isn't a division, but there's no sense in which there's a story unfolding on stage and there's a music, you might have this idea of traditional opera, there's a, you know, a story, often quite a silly one, uh, and then people bring out various emotional qualities or they, they you know, they add a symphonic aspect to all this or that. With, with Wagner, his, his idea uh, and his execution is so integrated that as long as you give yourself into the music, then you can understand what the action is all about. This is to do with his, his vision of the, the total work of art. It is, which is an old idea, and it's not, you know, Wagner wasn't the first who had to do with opera who came up with this idea. This is part of the history of opera since its incarnation, is this idea of recapturing the total experience which everyone thought was afforded by the dramas of uh, ancient Athens of the Athenian festivals. Every art form is, is contributing to the meaning which you then can carry away and which will reinvigorate your commitment to the polis. 
And so then can I ask on a, on a, on a much more general note, I mean, what, what, what was it about Wagner that, that sees him described again and again as, as so revolutionary, so radical? Well, it's this, it is this degree of integration. And as I say, he's not the first to come up with the idea. I mean, he's the first to use the term Gesamtkunstwerk, but uh, he's not the first to say that the idea of the ideal of opera is to be integrated. But he's the first, in a way, to take it quite so far. And he deals with mythic themes. So he's not dealing with untouched legends. He's not dealing with the stories that we'll, we, everybody already knows. He's dealing with stories that he's making from mythic elements so all of his mature elements all of his mature operas have this uh, this feature and it's the it's the mythic aspect of the stories which embeds itself in the way that his music is conceived as in itself being part of what tells the story and what gives the stories life and dynamism you went to see guy that the a production in in stockholm um which I want to ask you about, but we should, before we do that, why don't we play a piece of it? So you picked something out, didn't you? Yes, it's from the opening of the Gotterdammerung, which I think means Twilight of the Gods, and it's the the fourth, it's from the fourth and and final part of the ring. And I think, so the title is a translation into the German of the old Norse phrase Ragnarok, which is, it refers to this, this cataclysmic war that was supposed to lead to the renewal of the world. And so we're going to hear a little passage of that and then we'll talk to Guy about the production. Guy, tell us about this production. What made it stand? Because it, it struck me reading your review, this was you felt this was a a, a fine piece of musical theatre of, of of opera. What was what made it stand out for you? Well, several things. One is, to be honest, I don't go to ring cycles very often because I, I have small children. And <laughs> you have a life, guy. You have a life. It doesn't, doesn't connect with the rhythm of family life very well. But having decided to go to this one, uh, which is in a way it's my local uh, opera house now, the things that stood out for me are, okay, there was this, this wonderful casting, this mi- mixture of casting. So Stockholm is an opera house which, which has a big uh, company of soloists uh, in-house. So they, 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 when they cast an opera, they, they usually use people from in-house. And they have some wonderful singers. But they also used uh, Nina Stemmer, um, the uh, Swedish dramatic soprano who, who tours and plays uh, she sings Brunhilde all over the world uh, as well as Isolde and several other Wagnerian heroines uh, Lars Klevermann also a Swedish uh, he's a rock star on the side incidentally uh, he was singing Siegfried John Lundgren who uh, is Swedish but also mostly operative and uh, operates in Denmark so they got some you know some pretty good names uh, in the house the house itself is um it's a small house by uh, modern opera house standards. So the feeling is, is quite intimate, 
if you if you have a good the the acoustic is not always great, but if you have a good line to the voices, wow, the sense of presence is extraordinary. So Nina Stemmer singing a great peroration at the end of the whole cycle. This was this was just like being enveloped in in the most extraordinary wave of sound. And were you moved, Guy? Do you do you come out of this feeling moved? Yeah, of course. In fact, the the most the most moving, strictly speaking, of the operas is uh, the second one because that's the one in which the the tragic aspects of the balance between the world of the gods and the world of the humans uh, is most manifest. It's a more straightforward tragedy. There's these two twins who, it sounds rather strange, they find each other. Uh, he's uh, he's Peek uh, Munda, he's been running, he's uh, had a life cursed by terrible luck, he's found shelter, um, he's on the hunt for people trying to kill him, uh, and he receives shelter from a woman who turns out to be his twin sister, uh, separated at birth, but also his lover, and there's a, a great deal of... Uh, funny um, things one might think about this, but, but there's, a, there's a great purity to the, to the idea, which is that these two are essentially made to be with each other. And if one you know, discards the question about the legality and just relate to the emotions being played on stage, and then what happens to these lovers, which is, of course, they are not allowed to continue, and Siegmunder is, is killed. And this is, the, this is an in- intervention of one of the gods. It's very, very tragic. And in fact, it's the tragic note with which that opera ends, which is the kind of crowning theme for the end of the uh, final opera. So this music comes back again. And because these, over the course of four evenings, you've lived with bits of music which keep on developing, which keep on coming back, by the end of the ring, they become like all these uh, all these friends that you were just, you were just living with the whole time. Briefly, um because you review books uh, about Wagner as well. What do the operas tell us about the man? I mean, we, we talked about Nietzsche on this podcast last week and we had the conversation of whether he could be accused of anti-Semitism. Is that when people say Wagner because of how he's appropriated by the Nazis, in, in a similar way, you might say, to, to Nietzsche? Is that, do you always find yourself, Guy, when you say that you like the music having to defend the man? Uh, yes, I do, because Wagner was an anti-Semite. Um, in fact, in a, in, a, in a rather more straightforward way uh, than Nietzsche, I think. You have to put it to one side to a certain extent, because, of course, you know, Wagner's anti-Semitism is, is, is really rooted in a cultural current that was around at the time. He was a, a man who tended to radicalize every opinion that he had. So he, whatever he thought, he thought so much more extremely than everybody else. And there's a sense in which his anti-Semitism, you can just read it as a, as a kind of... He's, he's, he's fastened on... An aspect of his own character, which is the one that he's really ashamed of. You know, here he's this guy who's proclaiming, he's projecting an image of himself as the, you know, supreme, authentic artist, and he was in fact, you know, a wonderful mimic, and he spent an awful long time finding his voice, and he he was terribly histrionic in his relationships, and not at all authentic or uh, even sincere in many instances. So there's there's a sense in which it's all a, a big self-criticism sublimated circuit. But there's also a sense in which, well, you, you can't just put it to one side, because there is there is a sense in which the whole worldview, which is expressed in the ring, has to have some connection to the worldview, which allowed Jews and, and German Jews to be dehumanized in the eyes of ordinary German citizens. This is the, you know, the, the big kind of mysterious aspect about how Nazism and the Holocaust could really come about. And no one should say that Wagner is to blame or that Wagner is causal in this or there anything there but there is a connection and one can't simply say let's forget about it just just, just finally Guy I'm, I'm, you, you consciously you talk about you've got young kids and therefore going to the ring is a, is a hard thing to do what's the age you introduce young kids to Wagner do you know what it's perfect for teenagers to be perfectly honest small kids obviously know it's too long in a way that you know the thing we all you know have or had as adolescents is this, this thing where we kind of take our emotions far too Seriously, we we can't withdraw ourselves from you know one emotional world to another. We stay really fastened on the objects of our attention. You know, in a way, you know, Wagner was an eternal adolescent who just hit on some of the you know deepest truths about man and freedom and love that uh, that have been expressed, I think, in the history of Western art, and they're all there in the ring. But the mode of access is is uh, is quite adolescent in a way. Take your teenagers, Guy Diamond. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thea? I think I'd like to be one of those teenagers. I'd like to be taken. 
to Wagner. To Wagner. Do you feel that you've missed it a bit? I feel I've totally missed Wagner. I mean, I mean, how, can, is, I mean how can you miss it? I mean, it's. it's I'm, I'm aware of it and I've heard bits yeah. of it and I've, I remember sitting watching versions of it, like not in the theatre, but I've just missed it as an experience. But, yeah, so it's not it's not gone anywhere though. No. So you can still you can still we could go <laughs> we could still go to see. Should Wagner. we go and see four days? <laughs> but we're not going to. Well, really, going to have four days off yeah. to go. Um, no, but um, there's there's the Opera North production that Guy. Also reviews, um, refers yeah. to in his piece, and it's on iPlayer, and that's isn't it? on the iPlayer, um, and it's definitely something. It it weighs on my conscious conscience, and it's something I should I should I tend to. I think you need to. to be immersed. I think I think you almost need to go with Guy Damon and him sit there and explain stuff to you, and just someone at some. Why teenagers are such a good idea? If because if you could go as a teenager and learn a bit about it, it'd then be with you for all of your adult life. I can see that becoming a thing. It's just mm. at our age now. It seems an odd thing to. It's quite. A, it seems quite a barrier to get into it. Mm. Well, I think for that reason, um, Guy's piece is, is 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 a useful one as well as an interesting and and pleasurable to read one because you get a sense of this work um, and its complexity. But you know, things things like the fact that it took I think twenty five or twenty six years to to compose and to to yeah. come come to fruition. So we should I mean, probably think of to it just then. think yeah just think of how many <laughs> things changed in Wagner's life. Yeah. Politically, culturally. Uh, I'd love to have a deeper understanding in order to then be able to go and listen to the music and, and find resonance. Well, you better get going then. I know. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Thea has to go and learn all about German operatic culture before spending four days in the theatre. In the yeah. <laughs> Our thanks go to Tom Holland, Asaf Gavron, Toby Lichtig, and Guy Damon. Do go to the tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which is led by an essay by none other than film director Martin Scorsese, who we're extremely proud to have as a TLS contributor. Give yourself a treat and look that up. And do tweet this podcast at at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do review us on iTunes too. Next week, we shall be tackling that ever-relevant and weighty topic, the true meaning of Islam. Don't say we don't cover all bases here on this podcast. Until then, from Theo and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.